Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. My guest today, Gulalai Ismail, won't tell me how she came to New York. Doing so, she says, will put too many lives at risk. Gulalai Ismail is a longtime human rights activist in Pakistan. Her organization, Aware Girls, helped to train the likes of Nobel Peace Prize winner Malala Yousafzai and hundreds of other Pakistani girls, mostly in the very conservative parts of the country, rife with Islamist militants. She has faced numerous death threats over the years for her outspoken promotion of the rights of women and girls. But it was not until she began speaking out against the Pakistani government that she felt compelled to flee the country. As she explains, she was put on a most wanted list for her leadership and participation in a protest movement this year seeking accountability for human rights abuses committed by the Pakistani security forces during counterterrorism operations. This was when harassment and threats directly from the government forced her into hiding. She only publicly resurfaced in New York City in September and she is now seeking political asylum in the United States. I met Gulalai Ismail at a co-working space in Manhattan in September, where she told me her story. Needless to say, this is a very powerful episode. I suspect many of you will want more information about Gulalai Ismail and her work, so I've posted a link to Aware Girls on the website. And if you are new to the podcast, welcome. Please visit globaldispatchespodcast.com or subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts to peruse our robust archive of interviews with journalists and academics and diplomats and NGO leaders and activists, all with interesting perspectives on global affairs. And if you are a regular listener to the show, thank you for listening and feel free to reach out to me anytime using the contact button on the podcast homepage. And a note before we begin from Northwestern University's online master's program in global health, you can learn how to make a meaningful difference in places where it's needed most. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the ad to learn more or go to sbs.northwestern.edu slash global. And now here is my conversation with Gulalai Ismail. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Malala Yousafzai and I come from the same part of the world. We both are ethnically Pashtuns. 
come from Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province of Pakistan Malala Yousafzai was one of the alumni of our young women leadership programs we used to work together when before she was hit by Taliban for raising voice for education and uh, after Malala started Malala fund and uh, started working on the right to education through Malala fund I became one of the Gulmakai champions uh, and together we advocated in Pakistan for improved access of young women and girls to education so what is the program from which she is an alumni we had we we used to work on young women leadership programs in which we would engage young women and girls who were potential leaders with different opportunities where they can have a platform to speak about their rights where they can get training on leadership skills so she was uh, we together worked in a program which was about raising voice for against domestic abuse so she came to our programs which were um, we were doing a program on we were running series of programs on the um, 10 days of activism against violence against women from which runs from for which runs from 1st December to 10th December so that's where she participated in our programs so how long have you been working with this movement are you you're the founder of the movement is that right of the organization i am founder of the organization i started the organization when i started the organization with my sister saba she was 15 and i was 16 we were in school and my father was a human rights defender so we had been very passionate about human rights from very young age uh, though i come from a culture which is uh, i come from the northwest of pakistan which has a very difficult culture for women women's mobility is uh, restricted women's access to education to public spaces and to employment is 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 really limited like even today the uh, if you look at the statistics then uh, only 30% of girls have uh, completed their primary education and only 10% of girls have actually completed 10th grade so it's a very difficult culture for women and girls but um, you know but my father was a human rights defender and he was bringing up with really progressive values i at they at at that age i didn't realize that education was considered a privilege for young for girls but then when one day one of my own cousin who was around around my age i was 13 she was maybe 2 years elder than me she was taken out of school she wanted to become a pilot she was taken out of school and she was married to a man who was double her age that was the when she was taken out of her school that was a point i realized that education is not considered a basic right for for every girl and woman in my community and i learned that this is not story of my own cousin this is story of many other girls in my region so at that point me and my sister we decided that we need to step up we need to change it this cannot happen to more girls that can this cannot happen to us and to more girls if girls have dreams they shall have all the opportunities to to achieve their dreams so we decided that at that time though we were very young like i was just 16 and we we started talking to other girls about it and we realized that not many other girls uh, were of the view that they can change but you know that they can change such patriarchal customs and culture culture which is against women they thought it's too big for them to change so we me and my sister we realized that if we want to make this world a better place for girls then we need to start from girls we need to raise awareness among girls and we need to realize them that they can change this world they can challenge patriarchy so we started an organization and we call it aware girls at the time at the age of 16 and and how many years ago was this that was 16 years ago 16 so 
I mean, at the time, I mean, I have to imagine, even though you were you were young, you you realized that this was going to be a risky endeavor. That there was going, even though your family supported what you were doing, or at least your father supported what his daughters were doing, that perhaps broader social um, strictures might have pushed against that, and that you were sort of threatening some people. At the at that age, you do not think about the dangers associated with it. You are just so passionate about the change that you want to bring that you don't think about the dangers. You were so excited about it because, you know, my I was very angry when my cousin got married and then, you know, it opened up to me that it's not just my own cousin. It's a story of so many other girls around the world that they are being forced to uh, to to get married at an early age and they are not allowed to be part of you know they, they the culture does not let them part of public life public spaces political life when we were young at that age you know you i was thinking that public spaces for example the the park or the the markets they belong to us as well but when i grew up we it was then that i realized that it is not just like park or playgrounds that are not accessible to women and girls it's parliament as well it's political parties as well it's everywhere where decisions are taken they women are excluded from those places so uh, so accordingly we changed our programs we grew up and we built better programs to make sure that women and girls are part of decision making processes but we, when we started it, no one would believe that young women can start an organization and they can work on issues like woman empowerment or political participation of women or countering violent extremism. I remember that whenever we would do, like, I remember once we were um, celebrating Women International Women's Day and we had organized this big one-day conference on the issue and we had invited stakeholders, media, civil society, people from the government, and me and my sister and our staff all were young women like we were all young so we were all like standing near the stage and the guests were coming and everyone who would enter the room they would ask who is the organizer and we would say we where's are, the man in charge we, yeah. and we would say we are the organizer yeah. and then they would say no who is the real organizer and we were like we are the real organizer so initially it would be very difficult for people to believe that young women can actually do it but I, they, there were a lot of, you know, like, of course, many, they, we, we faced a position, many people thought that we are bringing Western values and we are destroying our culture. But I also would say that there were many people who, uh, especially there were many fathers who also wanted their daughters to be this mm-hmm. brave and uh, they would want their daughters to be part of the program so that their girls can have a better life. It, I mean, in this time, in, in when you were starting up and in your, you know, the, the earlier years of your organization, how much of a physical threat to your safety did, say, the Taliban um, pose, which, you know, it was, I assume, around this time uh, that, you know, Malala was, was shot, you know, an alum of your program. It was long before that. When we started working, it was 2002. Okay. It was a time when Talibanization was at its peak in Pakistan. I think Malala was maybe 
five or yeah. eight years okay, when she was okay. very young at that age. We, when we started working, in 2002, we had established the organization already. Mm-hmm. And I had uh, started working for on the issues of young women before that. It was two, before 9-11. I was already working on the uh, on girls' issues. So it was a time when militancy was uh, rampant. And even today, militancy and violent extremism is widespread in our in our country but even at that time the um, the militant organizations they enjoyed state support so it was very common that these religious clerics and taliban they would hold big protests big demonstrations and they would call for jihad they would call because at that time jihad in afghanistan and kashmir was you know it was celebrated so i started working in a time when religious political parties religious clerics and taliban hold a lot of political power and at that time we started working for young women's issues so and so it was also i do i remember so well that it was a time period when NGO and civil society were bashed a lot by religious clerics and when as we started working as an NGO we also received a lot of hate for for destroying our culture for promoting western values and no one would believe that young women can be or girls can be so independent that they can have their own thoughts and they can have their own program for change so we did face a lot of uh, opposition for from that and yeah, you were able to to stay in Pakistan throughout much of that time but here we are it's 2019 and you're no longer in Pakistan where we're speaking in in New York you've you've fled um, and and we'll talk about the reasons for, for you, you fleeing in in a moment um, but it's it strikes me as sort of interesting and, and almost shocking that you were able to work in this incredibly difficult environment doing you know, culturally sensitive work, politically probably sensitive work for so long, yet it's only this year that you felt compelled to leave. What, what changed? In my 16 years of activism, I don't remember that there was a day when we had not faced any kind of challenge. Before the advent of social media, there was the the, the uh, like mosque clerics and the conservative section of the society. They would do propaganda against us, as they would spread hate against us. But you know, we always stayed determined because one of the things that my mentor taught me was that if you are facing a position, it means your work is having an impact. So if people are against your work, it means already that you are changing the status quo and those who are perpetrators of the violence, they are already feeling threatened from you. So if my my work was having an impact and that is why there was an opposition for the work. So I continued my work. There was a time, it was uh, in 2009 when I established Youth Peace Network because, you know, it was a time period when most part, the most northwest of the Pakistan was already occupied by Taliban Taliban were against women's mobilities, they were against women's education, employment, they were against women in public spaces, and they were recruiting young people as militants, as jihadists, as Taliban. At that time, I decided that, you know, I cannot let young people being recruited by militant organizations. So we started Youth Peace Network to help young people who were more vulnerable to the recruitment of Taliban and militant organizations to help prevent them from recruitment. And through my work, we prevented more than 10,000 young people 
from being recruited and we reached out other thousands of young people to promote alternative narratives of non-violence pluralism to promote social cohesion and to you know to to counter the narratives of extremism so i was actively working to counter the narratives of extremism because i believe that you cannot end terrorism only through military operations or through security measures you need to tackle the ideology because ideology is at the at the roots of terrorism so if you fight only wars but if you are not dealing with the ideology you cannot get rid of terrorism and that was work we, and you know it not only taliban were threatened by the work that i was doing but also the state actors which had sympathy towards taliban the state actors which were supporting such policies pro war policies they also felt threatened by the work we were doing it was 2014 when i was first attacked our home was attacked actually what happened it was uh, it was one night around there were around four to five uh, people with guns they 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 knocked at our door they tried to break in they tried to enter our home when we didn't open the door they tried to break the door and then they 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 shooted at our home and they threatened my family that if saba and i saba my sister and i do, do not stop working on promoting western ideologies like that the work on human rights then we shall be prepared for dire consequences so that was uh, we we had a narrow escape from that incident and after that we re- relocated our home we moved from peshawar to islamabad we went to another city two years after we were again attacked our home in the village was attacked but by by chance by coincidence we were not at home that night but around uh, i think around two dozens of bullets were shooted at our home at that night from all sides so we had been you know regularly we had been attacked there had been social media campaigns against the work that i have been doing my work on counter violent extremism was um, equated with some work as i'm doing something against islam because i was working against the uh, extremist ideology but so the extremist sections of the society posed it at something that i'm doing against islam then in 2007 but you know despite of all those what was happening i decided that i'm not going to leave pakistan i well, will how, stay and i will fight back how did you make that decision i mean because at some point you decided you needed to leave so here we are in new york so how how did you make that decision back in say 2017 um to stay in Pakistan after your home was attacked after you'd come under so many threats i wanted to fight back as much as i can i did not want to leave because see when i was always of the opinion that when you leave the you your community you can talk about your community but you cannot work within your community so i was taking all those risks i even decided not to leave pakistan in 2017 when a blasphemy campaign was run against me the, and the in pakistan Yeah. And in Pakistan if you are accused of blasphemy you can be killed by anyone and a four months online campaign continuously for four months all over the internet was only i that you know i was posed as someone who is against islam against culture against um, uh, against islam and against pakistan and at that time you know it was the the campaign was viral i was receiving thr- i was receiving death threats i was receiving rape threats acid attack threats mob lynching threats people would say oh i am very poor but i have 1000 dollars and i'm willing to give it in crowdfunding to kill her and i decided that i will stand my ground i went to the court I filed a case against the leader of the movement 
and when he organized a big protest against me in my own city i went to the court and asked the court to cancel his bail because he was putting my life at risk and luckily his bail was cancelled for a week and he was sent to jail for a week and that was that that set a precedent in pakistan that you know you cannot create online blasphemy campaigns against people there will be consequences if you put people's life at risk i remember that received some media attention if i recall your 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 efforts your yes. legal efforts i re- i remember those seeing those stories yes because that was for the first time in pakistan that a woman went to court against blasphemy campaign usually people leave country if they have an opportunity to leave the country they would leave the country but you know in but the last more than a year that has been so difficult for me because for since the the attacks against us started in 2014 i stood against it but they never stopped in 2018 when this new movement started in pakistan against state enforced terrorism it was an ethnic movement called as an ethnic human rights movement called as pashtun protection movement okay, can you talk about that because i think that that plays a central role in the reason that we're speaking here today yeah you know i come from the uh, khyber pakhtunkhwa province of pakistan that is the northwest of pakistan which was badly hit by terrorism and it got a world's reputation of as a as a place which was used to harbor terrorist and terrorism uh, because of pakistan state's policies uh, so uh, uh, in uh, for last 17 years pakistan military has been engaged in military operations against terrorism in the northwest pakistan however what we as local people have seen that the state itself has remained complicit in protecting terrorists and training terrorist organizations and when it comes to and people of people like us we have been calling for you know we have been calling for action policy level action against the terrorist organizations we have been calling for peace but when the state decided under international pressure to take action against terrorist organizations same terrorist organizations which were in the past protected and trained by pakistan when military operations started they were given a safe exit and lo- and a lot of human rights abuses were committed during those counter terrorism operations like m- thousands of people were killed extrajudicially thousands of people were were made victims of enforced disappearances and even after so many years those people still remain in torture centers of the military and there is no law against enforced disappearances there is no law against extrajudicial killing instead of holding those state actors accountable which are involved in human rights abuses such as sexual violence extrajudicial killing or um, enforced disappearances instead of holding those actors accountable the the government of khyber pakhtunkhwa province just passed a law no, known as like uh, aid um, aid in civil action and that law actually allows the pakistan military to establish torture centers to kill people extrajudicially that law has been passed recently however as a result of the extrajudicial killings and enforced disappearances a movement emerged from the tribal areas of pakistan which asked for bringing an end to extrajudicial killing and it asked for uh, presenting all those people who are victims of enforced disappearances to the courts so that people can have a right to free and fair trial if someone is uh, innocent they will get released and if someone is proved guilty they can be dealt as per law however the government and pakistan military refused to bring the uh, victims of enforced disappearances to the court and this movement and, and as i said that this movement emerged in uh, 2018 
asking for a truth and reconciliation commission thousand it happened for the first time in the history of pakistan that thousands of young people they came together and they are asking for accountability of those state actors in pakistan who are complicit in protecting terrorists who are complicit in promoting terrorism and do you believe it was your participation in this movement in a call for a truth and reconciliation commission that led to an increase in in attacks and threats against you in the region where i come from it is not common for women to be part of such movements even such movements and they they in itself are unique but then women participation and when women are part of such movements it gives movements much more credibility so i was my participation in the movement the state felt threatened the state actors felt threatened by my participation in the movement because i had been working for human rights for the past 15 16 years and i'm internationally connected so the state actors were afraid that if i'm part of the movement then i take the message internationally and then the whole world will know that there is a movement based on values of non-violence asking for a truth and reconciliation commission asking for putting an end to the genocide and war crimes happening in the uh, in the pashtun regions of pakistan so i was targeted for it my organization was suspended to punish me the organization which i established at the age of 16 was they like they took away the like the charter or something of it they used legal means to yes yeah, to, they, to yeah. Of, yeah, the registration authority one day sent yeah. us a letter that you know you cannot work and it's like a, a typical ploy of governments like that to do something like that for civil society yes and they thought that i will stop supporting the movement because they have taken the most beautiful thing from me like a where girls was my baby they took my baby from me so they thought she will stop supporting the movement for peace but i didn't well i can tell in having met you just 20 minutes ago <laughs> that that was not a a smart move on their part yeah i i think that uh, it was not but it was a brutal move on their part yeah. because i was changing lives of thousands of young people with the help of that organization but it didn't stop here they when i didn't stop supporting the movement when i didn't stop calling for a truth and reconciliation commission they took away my passport they put me on exit control list a no fly list i was not allowed to leave country because the only reason given to me was that the uh, that the security agencies they don't like my speeches that i do internationally it bring bad name to pakistan so that is why they have put me on exit control list so that i cannot uh, go out my work on peace building was called as brainwashing of young people by so- the security agencies Was there a specific moment um or event or incident that um finally convinced you that you you need to leave or you you might not you know live yeah. to keep doing this work? Yeah, the past one year uh, since uh, past one year has been extremely difficult, but then in May 2019 when I raised the issue of sexual violence in the uh, armed conflict of Pakistan that is in the tribal areas when I raised the issue of sexual violence committed by Pakistan security forces in the tribal areas of Pakistan during the military operations when I raised that issue that was the point that Pakistan state started intense crackdown against me I was booked in cases of terrorism treason sedition anti-state activities promoting ethnic violence anti-terrorism laws were used against me I have been booked in around more than 6 cases I have been booked in under the anti-terrorism clause 
I was called as a terrorist because mm-hmm. I raised the issue of sexual violence in armed conflict. Uh, media was used against me. Mainstream media was calling to hang me in public. My name was put on a state kill list and attempts were made to torture me, to abduct me, to kill me. My family home was raided using, I, well, you know, when these were, uh, it was 21st May when I, 2019 when I did a speech in which I spoke about sexual violence incidents. And next day, three cases were made against me under anti-terrorism law. And then mainstream media was used against. I immediately went into hiding because my friends told me that this is a big plan for you. They couldn't stop you by banning you, by putting a ban on your organization. They couldn't stop you by uh, taking your passport and your right to travel from you. Now they will kill you. So just they, they asked me to go into hiding for that time but when i went into hiding the situation becomes so worse after that because you're following stories uh, about you and you're obviously following the news for example how did you find out that your name was on this kill list as you put it though i went though when i went into hiding i did not have access to internet i did not have a phone on me but grad but when occasionally i will get access to internet i will see and one day i saw on twitter that uh, united nations has written a letter to pakistan which mentioned that my name was on a state kill list so that's how for the first time i got to know and then later i got to know a friend of mine was uh, picked up by the security agencies he was kept in a torture cells for 14 hours he was electrocuted for 14 hours he was he was brutally tortured to get information about me because the state agencies so much wanted to to arrest me and to torture me and to kill me and when they were not able to find me they started torturing people my loved ones they would they would abduct them and torture them to get information about me. So this friend was also told that we have already decided to kill her. If you give us information, you will get some benefits. You can get a house for yourself. You can get a car. Whatever you need, we will give you, but help us. And then few uh, after a month, it was 6th August and... Uh, once in July, uh, um, one of the girl who works in a wear girls, her house was raided by the agencies and she was also told that, you know, she was offered bribery to help them in their plan, to give them information so that I can be killed or tortured. So from multiple sources, I got to know that they have already decided to kill me. And I also knew it because it was November 2018 when I, despite police cases made against me, police cases were also made against me in 2018. Every time I would participate in a protest, a case would be registered against me. In November 2018, I was taken to ISI, the uh, Intelligence and Security Services. Yes. They took me to their district headquarters with my father and there my father was told in front of me that if you do not make sure that your daughter is silent she does not stop she does not stop uh, if she did not stop criticizing pakistan military and security agencies then we will kill her they told it in front of me to my father that you have to make sure that she's silent and they also asked me to make videos against this movement which was for peace and when i refused to make any false videos against the movement they told my father that we will do whatever we want to do if you do not compromise so i knew it that they already have this plan but it became extremely worse my like my family home has been raided uh, uh, many times my friends had been abducted it had become 
it was not possible for me in the past four months were made extremely difficult and i realized that it is now no more possible for me to keep to live in pakistan while raising my voice or even to stay alive in pakistan therefore i decided along with my friends we decided that i need to leave pakistan if i need to keep on raising my voice and if i need to uh, to stay alive because you know there are not so many women from our region who have been able to um, to, to who have been able to work for human rights and women rights and for peace and if there are some they deserve to live and they needed to be heard by the world they should not be so, killed so i know for security reasons we can't go into the details of how you were able to escape pakistan and come here to the United States, to New York, where, where we're speaking. Um, but can you describe what your mission is is now? Um, I take it also you are in the process of, of trying to seek asylum here in the United States. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that process looks like for you as a human rights defender from Pakistan trying to seek asylum here in the United States? You know, it is uh, not possible for me, at least for a few more years, to go back to Pakistan because my life is not safe there. Uh, I will be killed immediately, I know. I can be tortured, that I know. So it's not possible at this point for me to go back to Pakistan. So I have to stay here for some time, for some years at least. So I have applied for asylum already. My interview is scheduled in two weeks. I also, when I landed here, I did closed-door meetings with different senators. I met with Senator Schum- with the staff of Senator Schumer, Senator Gillibrand, Senator Durbin, Senator Shaheen, and um, Senator, uh, and they have actually, um, you know, they, they have actually raised voice for me using their social media. Senator Schumer already has said it very clearly that it seems from my case that I will not be safe in Pakistan if I go back. So he will do whatever he can to make sure that my asylum case is approved and expedited. Similarly, Senator Shaheen has also said similar things on her on her Twitter. Uh, so, uh, you know, like I think that the policymakers in the United States, they do understand that uh, my life is at huge risk in Pakistan uh, because of my human rights activism. And uh, my so I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that my asylum case will be approved here. And once I am able, once I'm settled, I plan to continue raising voice for human rights. I plan to continue working on the empowerment of young women in my region. I uh, I aim to work to continue working on preventing young people from extremism, preventing them from joining militant organizations, and I will keep on raising my voice for human rights abuses committed, especially sexual violence committed against women in the conflict zones. I think that uh, any con that um, I think that you know the Pakistan. The military spokesperson had said it on media, on mainstream media in a press conference that everything is fair in love and war. So all human rights abuses committed in the war, in the military operations in Pakistan are justified. But I, as a human rights activist, I will make sure that they are held accountable for the human rights abuses during the conflict. We cannot let them go for raping women, for sexually assaulting women, for abducting people, for extrajudicially killing people. Uh, Well, well, thank you, and and good luck. And how can people listening support your work if they want to 
if they want to help you and, and help your cause. We have a website of Aware Girls. They can go to our website, www.awaregirls.org. Look at the work, look at the projects that we are running. And if you want to support our work, contact us through our website. Thank you. And, and thank you for your work on behalf of human rights as well. For all, you know, it's human rights. It's all of us that you're, you're working for, not just, I think, folks in, in, in the Pakistani tribal regions. But, you know, it's universal. Uh, it's universal. I totally yeah. agree. Well, thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Gulalai Ismail. That was indeed a very powerful conversation, and I'm glad to uh, use this platform to have her tell her story, particularly as she pursues her asylum case here in the United States and seeks to raise awareness about the conditions that she was forced to flee in Pakistan. For you premium subscribers to the show, wanted to let you know that I've just posted as a bonus episode my conversation with Ambassador Dennis Ross. He is a longtime Middle East peacemaker, was uh, there in the room and largely responsible for some of the greatest achievements of Middle East peace in the 1990s during the Clinton administration and, of course, witnessed many of the profound failures as well. He tells a great story about his uh, personal involvement in these peace efforts and how he got a start as a diplomat. That episode and dozens of other bonus episodes are available to premium subscribers. To become a premium subscriber, uh, please go to patreon.com slash global dispatches or go to the homepage and click the links there. Thank you. You support the show and unlock great rewards for yourself. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye.